Section 56 of Elia and the Last Essays of Elia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adrian Stevens. Elia and the Last Essays of Elia by Charles Lamb. On some of the old actors. The casual sight of an old playbill which I picked up the other day, I know not by what chance it was preserved so long, tempts me to call to mind a few of the players who make the principal figure in it. It presents the cast of parts in the Twelfth Night at the old Drury Lane Theatre two and thirty years ago. There is something very touching in these old remembrances. They make us think how we once used to read a playbill, not as now, peradventure, singling out a favourite performer and casting a negligent eye over the rest, but spelling out every name, down to the very mutes and servants of the scene, when it was a matter of no small moment to us whether Whitfield or Packer took the part of Fabian, when Benson and Burton and Fillimore, names of small account, had an importance beyond what we can now be content to attribute now to the time's best actors, Orsino by Mr. Barrymore. What a full Shakespearean sound it carries! How fresh to memory arise the image and the manner of the gentle actor! Those who have only seen Mrs. Jordan within the last ten or fifteen years can have no adequate notion of her performance of such parts as Ophelia, Helena, in All's Well That Ends Well, and Viola in this play. Her voice had latterly acquired a coarseness, which suited well enough with her nails and hoydens, but in those days it sank with her steady melting eye into the heart. Her joyous parts, in which her memory now chiefly lives, in her youth were outdone by her plaintive ones. There is no giving an account how she delivered the disguised story of her love for Orsino. It was no set speech that she had foreseen so as to weave it into an harmonious period, line necessarily following line, to make up the music. Yet I have heard it so spoken, or rather read, not without its grace and beauty, but when she had declared her sister's history to be a blank, and that she never told her love, there was a pause, as if the story had ended, and then the image of the worm in the bud came up as a new suggestion, and the heightened image of patience still followed after that, as if by some growing and not mechanical process, thoughts springing up after thought, I would almost say, as they were watered by her tears, so in those fine lines... Write loyal cantos of contemned love, hollow your name to the reverberate hills. There was no preparation made in the foregoing image for that which was to follow. She used no rhetoric in her passion, or it was nature's own rhetoric, most legitimate then, when it seemed altogether without rule or law. Mrs. Powell, now Mrs. Renard, then in the pride of her beauty, made an admirable Olivia. She was particularly excellent in her unbending scenes in conversation with the clown. I have seen some Olivias, 
and those very sensible actresses too who in these interlocutions have seemed to set their wits at the jester and to vie conceits with him in downright emulation but she used him for her sport like what he was to trifle a leisure sentence or two with and then to be dismissed and she to be the great lady still she touched the imperious fantastic humour of the character with nicety her fine spacious person filled the scene the part of malvolio has in my judgment been so often misunderstood and the general merits of the actor who then played it so unduly appreciated that i shall hope for pardon if i am a little prolix upon these points of all the actors who flourished in my time a melancholy phrase if taken aright reader bensley had most of the swell of soul was greatest in the delivery of heroic conceptions the emotions consequent upon the presentment of a great idea to the fancy he had the true poetical enthusiasm the rarest faculty among players none that i remember possessed even a portion of that fine madness which he threw out in hotspur's famous rant about glory or the transports of the venetian incendiary at the vision of the fired city his voice had the dissonance and at times the inspiriting effect of the trumpet his gait was uncouth and stiff but no way embarrassed by affectation and the thoroughbred gentleman was uppermost in every movement he seized the moment of passion with the greatest truth like a faithful clock never striking before the time never anticipating or leading you to anticipate he was totally destitute of trick and artifice he seemed to come upon the stage to do the poet's message simply and he did it with as genuine fidelity as the nuncios in homer deliver the errands of the gods he let the passion or the sentiment do its own work without prop or bolstering he would have scorned to mount a banquet and betrayed none of that cleverness which is the bane of serious acting for this reason his iago was the only endurable one which i remember to have seen no spectator from his action could divine more of his artifice than othello was supposed to do his confessions in soliloquy alone put you in possession of the mystery there were no by-intimations to make the audience fancy their own discernment so much greater than that of the moor who commonly stands like a great helpless mark set up for mine ancient and a quantity of barren spectators to shoot their bolts at the iago of bensley did not go to work so grossly there was a triumphant tone about the character natural to a general consciousness of power but none of that petty vanity which chuckles and cannot contain itself upon any little successful stroke of its knavery as is common with your small villains and green probationers in mischief it did not clap or crow before its time it was not a man setting his wits at a child and winking all the while at other children who are mightily pleased at being let into the secret but a consummate villain entrapping a noble nature into toils against which no discernment was available where the manner was as fathomless as the purpose seemed dark and without motive the part of malvolio in the twelfth night 
was performed by Bensley with a richness and a dignity of which, to judge from some recent castings of that character, the very tradition must be worn out from the stage. No manager in those days would have dreamed of giving it to Mr. Baddeley or Mr. Parsons. When Bensley was occasionally absent from the theatre, John Kemble thought it no derogation to succeed to the part. Malvolio is not essentially ludicrous. He becomes comic but by accident. He is cold, austere, repelling, but dignified, consistent, and, for what appears, rather of an overstretched morality. Maria describes him as a sort of Puritan, and he might have worn his gold chain with honour in one of our old roundhead families in the service of a Lambert or a Lady Fairfax. But his morality and his manners are misplaced in Illyria. He is opposed to the proper levities of the piece, and falls in the unequal contest. Still, his pride or his gravity, call it which you will, is inherent and native to the man, not mock or affected, which latter only are the fit objects to excite laughter. His quality is at best unlovely, but neither buffoon nor contemptible. His bearing is lofty, a little above his station, but probably not much above his deserts. We see no reason why he should not have been brave, honourable, accomplished. His careless committal of the ring to the ground, which he was commissioned to restore to Cesario, bespeaks a generosity of birth and feeling. His dialect on all occasions is that of a gentleman and a man of education. We must not confound him with the eternal old low steward of comedy. He is master of the household to a great princess, a dignity probably conferred upon him for other respects than age or length of service. Olivia, at the first indication of his supposed madness, declares that she would not have him miscarry for half of her dowry. Does this look as if the character was meant to appear little or insignificant? Once, indeed, she accuses him to his face of what? Of being sick of self-love, but with a gentleness and a considerateness which could not have been if she had not thought that this particular infirmity shaded some virtues. His rebuke to the knight and his sottish revellers is sensible and spirited, and when we take into consideration the unprotected condition of his mistress and the strict regard with which her state of real or dissembled mourning would draw the eyes of the world upon her house affairs, Malvolio might feel the honour of the family in some sort in his keening, as it appears not that Oliver had any more brothers or kinsmen to look to it, for Sir Toby had dropped all such nice respects at the buttery hatch. That Malvolio was meant to be represented as possessing estimable qualities, the expression of the Duke in his anxiety to have him reconciled almost infers. Pursue him and entreat him to a peace. Even in his abused state of chains and darkness, a sort of greatness seems never to desert him. He argues highly and well with the supposed Sir Topas and philosophises gallantly upon his straw. Footnote. Clown. What is the opinion of Pythagoras concerning a wild fowl? Malvolio. That the soul of our grandam might haply inhabit a bird. Clown. What thinkest thou of his opinion? 
Malvolio, I think nobly of the soul, and no way approve of his opinion. End footnote. There must have been some shadow of worth about the man. He must have been something more than a mere vapour, a thing of straw or jack-in-office, before Fabian and Maria could have ventured sending him upon a courting errand to Olivia. There was some consonancy, as he would say, in the undertaking, or the jest would have been too bold even for the house of misrule. Bensley, accordingly, threw over the part an air of Spanish loftiness. He looked, spake, and moved like an old Castilian. He was starch, spruce, opinionated, but his superstructure of pride seemed bottomed upon a sense of worth. There was something in it beyond the coxcomb. It was big and swelling, but you could not be sure that it was hollow. You might wish to see it taken down, but you felt that it was upon an elevation. He was magnificent from the outset, but when the decent sobrieties of the character began to give way, and the poison of self-love in his conceit of the Countess's affection gradually to work, you would have thought that the hero of La Mancha in person stood before you. How he went smiling to himself! With what insufferable carelessness would he twirl his gold chain! What a dream it was! You were infected with the illusion, and you did not wish that it should be removed. You had no room for laughter. If an unseasonable reflection of morality obtruded itself, it was a deep sense of the pitiable infirmity of man's nature that can lay him open to such frenzies. But in truth, you rather admired than pitied the lunacy while it lasted. You felt that an hour of such mistake was worth an age with the eyes open. Who would not wish to live but for a day in the conceit of such a lady's love as Olivia? Why, the Duke would have given his principality but for a quarter of a minute, sleeping or waking, to have been so deluded. The man seemed to tread upon air, to taste manner, to walk with his head in the clouds, to mate Hyperion. Oh, shake not the castles of his pride, endure yet for a season bright moments of confidence. Stand still, ye watches of the element, that Malvolio may be still in fancy fair Olivia's lord, but fate and retribution say no. I hear the mischievous titter of Maria, the witty taunts of Sir Toby, the still more insupportable triumph of the foolish knight, the counterfeit Sir Topas, is unmarked, and thus the whirligig of time, as the true clown hath it, brings in his revenges. I confess that I never saw the catastrophe of this character while Bensley played it, without a kind of tragic interest. There was good foolery, too. Few now remember Dodd, what an ague cheek the stage lost in him. Lovegrove, who came nearest to the old actors, revived the character some few seasons ago and made it sufficiently grotesque. But Dodd was it. As it came out of nature's hands, it might be said to remain in puris naturalibus. In expressing slowness of apprehension, this actor surpassed all others. You could see the first dawn of an idea stealing slowly over his countenance, climbing up by little and little, with a painful process, till it cleared up at last to the fullness of a twilight conception, its highest meridian. 
he seemed to keep back his intellect, as some have had the power to retard their pulsation. The balloon takes less time in filling than it took to cover the expansion of his broad, moony face over all its quarters with expression. A glimmer of understanding would appear in the corner of his eye and for lack of fuel go out again. A part of his forehead would catch a little intelligence and be a long time in communicating it to the remainder. I am ill at dates, but I think it is now better than five and twenty years ago that walking in the gardens of Gray's Inn, they were then far finer than they are now, the accursed Verulam buildings had not encroached upon all the east side of them, cutting out the delicate green crankles, and shouldering away one of the two of the stately alcoves of the terrace. The survivor stands gaping and relationless as if it remembers its brother. They are still the best gardens of any of the inns of court, my beloved temple not forgotten, have the gravest character, their aspects being altogether reverent and law-breathing. Bacon has left the impress of his foot upon their gravel walks. Taking my afternoon solace on a summer day upon the aforesaid terrace, a comely sat personage came towards me, whom, from his grave air and deportment, I judged to be one of the old benchers of the inn. He had a serious thoughtful forehead, and seemed to be in meditations of mortality. As I have an instinctive awe of old benchers, I was passing him with that sort of sub-indicative token of respect which one is apt to demonstrate towards a venerable stranger, and which rather denotes an inclination to greet him than any positive motion of the body to that effect, a species of humility and will-worship which I observe, nine times out of ten, rather puzzles than pleases the person it is offered to, when the face turning full upon me strangely identified itself with that of Dodd. Upon close inspection, I was not mistaken. But could this sad, thoughtful countenance be the same vacant face of folly which I had hailed so often under circumstances of gaiety, which I have never seen without a smile, or recognised but as the usher of mirth that looked out so formally flat in Foppington, so frothily perth in tattle, so impotently busy in backbite, so blankly divested of all meaning, or resolutely expressive of none in acres, in fribble, and a thousand agreeable impertinences. Was this the face, full of thought and carelessness, that had so often divested itself at will, of every trace of either, to give me diversion, to clear my cloudy face for two or three hours, at least of its furrows. Was this the face, manly, sober, intelligent, which I had so often despised, made mocks at, made merry with? The remembrance of the freedoms which I had taken with it came upon me with a reproach of insult. I could have asked it pardon, I thought it looked upon me with a sense of injury. There is something strange as well as sad in seeing actors, your pleasant fellows particularly, subjected to and suffering the common lot. Their fortunes, their casualties, their deaths seem to belong to the scene, their actions to be amenable to poetic justice only. We can hardly connect them with more awful responsibilities the death of this fine actor took place shortly after this meeting. He had quitted the stage some months, 
and, as I learned afterwards, had been in the habit of resorting daily to these gardens, almost to the day of his decease. In these serious walks, probably, he was divesting himself of many scenic and some real vanities, weaning himself from the frivolities of the lesser and the greater theatre, doing gentle penance for a life of no very reprehensible fooleries, taking off by degrees the buffoon mask which he might feel he had worn too long, and rehearsing for a more solemn cast of part. Dying, he put on the weeds of Dominic. Footnote. Dodd was a man of reading, and left at his death a choice collection of old English literature. I should judge him to have been a man of wit. I know one instance of an impromptu which no length of study could have bettered. My merry friend, Jem White, had seen him one evening in Aguecheek, and recognising Dodd the next day in Fleet Street, was irresistibly impelled to take off his hat and salute him as the identical knight of the preceding evening with a save you sir andrew dodd not at all disconcerted at this unusual address from a stranger with a courteous half-rebuking wave of the hand put him off with an away fool End footnote. if you can remember dodd many yet living will not easily forget the pleasant creature who in those days enacted the part of the clown to dodd sir andrew richard or rather dicky suet for so in his lifetime he delighted to be called and time hath ratified the appellation lieth buried on the north side of the cemetery of holy paul to whose service his nonage and tender years were dedicated there are who do not yet remember him at that period his pipe clear and harmonious. He would often speak of his chorister days when he was cherub dicky. What clipped his wings or made it expedient that he should exchange the holy for the profane state, whether he had lost his good voice, his best recommendation to that office, like Sir John, with hallooing and singing of anthems, or whether he was a judge to lack something, even in those early years, of the gravity indispensable to an occupation which professeth to commerce with the skies i could never rightly learn but we find him after the probation of a twelvemonth or so reverting to a secular condition and become one of us i think he was not altogether of that timber out of which cathedral seats and sounding-boards are hewed but if a glad heart kind and therefore glad be any part of sanctity then might the robe of motley with which he invested himself with so much humility after his deprivation and which he wore so long with so much blameless satisfaction to himself and to the public be accepted for a surplice his white stole and alb the first fruits of his secularization was an engagement upon the boards of old jewry at which theatre he commenced as i have been told with adopting the manner of parsons in old men's characters at the period in which most of us knew him he was no more an imitator than he was in any true sense himself inimitable he was the robin goodfellow of the stage he came into trouble all things with a welcome perplexity himself no whit troubled for the matter he was known, like Puck, by his note, ha, 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 sometimes deepening to ho, 
ho, ho, with an irresistible accession, derived perhaps remotely from his ecclesiastical education, foreign to his prototype of Ola. Thousands of hearts yet respond to the chuckling Ola of Dicky Suet, brought back to their remembrance by the faithful transcript of his friend Matthew's mimicry. The force of nature could no further go. He drolled upon the stock of these two syllables richer than the cuckoo. Care that troubles all the world was forgotten in his composition. Had he but two grains, nay, half a grain, of it, he could never have supported himself upon those two spider's strings which served him, in the latter part of his unmixed existence, as legs. A doubt or a scruple must have made him totter, a sigh must have puffed him down, the weight of a frown had staggered him, a wrinkle made him lose his balance. But on he went, scrambling upon those airy stilts of his, with Robin Goodfellow, thorough break, thorough briar, reckless of a scratched face or a torn doublet. Shakespeare foresaw him when he framed his fools and jesters. They have all the true suet stamp, a loose and shambling gait, a slippery tongue, this last the ready midwife to without pain delivered jest, in words light as air, venting truths deep as the centre, with idlest rhymes tagging conceit when busiest, singing with leer in the tempest, or Sir Toby at the buttery hatch. Jack Bannister and he had the fortune to be more of personal favourites with the town than any actors before or after. The difference, I take it, was this. Jack was more beloved for his sweet, good-natured moral pretensions. Dicky was more liked for his sweet, good-natured no pretensions at all. Your whole conscience stirred with Bannister's performance of Walter in The Children in the Wood, but Dicky seemed like a thing, as Shakespeare says, of love, too young to know what conscience is. He put us into Vesta's days. Evil fled before him, not as from Jack, as from an antagonist, but because it could not touch him any more than a cannonball a fly. He was delivered from the burden of that death, and when death came himself, not in metaphor, to fetch Dicky, it is recorded of him by Robert Palmer, who kindly watched his exit, that he received the last stroke, neither varying his accustomed tranquillity nor tune, with the simple exclamation, worthy to have been recorded in his epitaph, Ola, Ola, Bobby! The elder Palmer, of stage-treading celebrity, commonly played Sir Toby in those days, but there is a solidity of wit in the jests of that half-falstaff which he did not quite fill out. He was as much too showy as Moody, who sometimes took the part, was dry and sottish. In sock or buskin there was an air of swaggering gentility about Jack Palmer. He was a gentleman with a slight infusion of the footman. His brother Bob, of recent a memory, who was his shadow in everything while he lived, and dwindled into less than a shadow afterwards, was a gentleman with a little stronger infusion of the latter ingredient. 
that was all. It is amazing how a little of the more or less makes a difference in these things. When you saw Bobby in the Duke's servant, footnote, high life below stairs, end footnote, you said, what a pity such a pretty fellow was only a servant. When you saw Jack figuring in Captain Absolute, you thought you could trace his promotion to some lady of quality who fancied the handsome fellow in his topknot and had bought him a commission. Therefore, Jack in Dick Amlet was insuperable. Jack had two voices, both plausible, hypocritical, and insinuating, but his secondary or supplemental voice, still more decisively histrionic than his common one, it was reserved for the spectator, and the dramatis posanas were supposed to know nothing at all about it, the lies of young Wilding and the sentiments in Joseph's surface were thus marked out in a sort of italics to the audience. This secret correspondence with the company before the curtain, which is the bane and death of tragedy, has an extremely happy effect in some kinds of comedy, in the more highly artificial comedy of Congreve, or of Sheridan especially, where the absolute sense of reality, so indispensable to scenes of interest, is not required, or would rather interfere to diminish your pleasure. The fact is, you do not believe in such characters as surface, the villain of artificial comedy, even while you read or see them. If you did, they would shock and not divert you. When Ben, in Love for Love, returns from sea, the following exquisite dialogue occurs at his first meeting with his father. Sir Sampson, thou hast been many a weary league, Ben, since I saw thee. Ben, aye, aye, been, been far enough, and that be all. Well, father, and how do all at home? How does brother Dick and brother Val? Sir Sampson, Dick, body o' me. Dick has been dead these two years. I writ you word when you were at Leghorn. Ben. Mess, that's true. Marry, I had forgot. Dick's dead, as you say. Well, and how? I have many questions to ask you. Here is an instance of insensibility which in real life would be revolting, or rather, in real life could not have coexisted with the warm-hearted temperament of the character but when you read it in the spirit with which such playful selections and specious combinations rather than strict metaphrases of nature should be taken, or when you saw Bannister play it, it neither did nor does wound the moral sense at all. For what is Ben, the pleasant sailor which Bannister gives us, but a piece of satire, a creation of Congreve's fancy, a dreamy combination of all the accidents of a sailor's character, his contempt of money, his credulity to women, with that necessary estrangement from home which is just within the verge of credibility to suppose might produce such an hallucination as is here described. We never think the worse of Ben for it, or feel it as a stain upon his character. But when an actor comes, and instead of the delightful phantom, the creature dear to half-belief which Bannister exhibited, displays before our eyes a downright concretion of a whopping sailor, a jolly warm-hearted Jack Tar, and nothing else, when instead of investing it with a delicious confusedness of the head and a veering undirected goodness of purpose, 
he gives to it a downright daylight understanding and a full consciousness of its actions thrusting forward the sensibilities of the character with a pretense as if it stood upon nothing else and was to be judged by them alone we feel the discord of the thing the scene is disturbed a real man has got in among the dramatis personae and puts them out we want the sailor turned out we feel that his true place is not behind the curtain but in the first or second gallery End of section 56